I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times? And how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ConsMinds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 11, we read Athwart History, selected essays from William F. Buckley Jr. William F. Buckley Jr. was born November 24th, 1925 in New York City, son of William F. Buckley Sr. and his wife, Alwaz Steiner. Buckley grew up in a cosmopolitan household, living in Mexico, Connecticut, France, and Great Britain. He attended private schools in Britain before returning with his family to the United States as World War II began. He was commissioned an officer in the U.S. Army in 1943 and served in the war. Afterwards, he attended Yale University, graduating in 1950. That same year, he married Patricia Taylor, with whom he would have one child. Buckley worked for the CIA for two years before becoming a writer full-time. In 1951, he published God and Man at Yale, the first of more than 50 books he would write in his life, and the one that made him a rising star among conservatives. In 1955, Buckley founded National Review, a magazine that was at the forefront of the conservative movement in the late 20th, 20th century. Famously, he announced that the magazine stands athwart history yelling stop at a time when no one is inclined to do so or to have much patience with those who so urge it. Buckley also hosted more than a thousand episodes of the television show Firing Line from 1966 to 1999, making it the longest running public affairs show in television history with a single host. In 1965, he ran for mayor of New York on the Conservative Party ticket, finishing third with 13% of the vote. Buckley's views reshaped American conservatism. His contribution to politics was to combine traditional conservatism and classical liberalism, a fusion that laid the groundwork for a shift in the Republican Party reflected in the candidacies of Barry Goldwater and, and later Ronald Reagan. Buckley's Frequent speaking and television appearances made him conservatism's most well-known public intellectual. He died at his home in Stanford, Connecticut on February 27, 2008, at the age of 82. Conservatism in the 1950s, when Buckley started his rise, was basically just a, a hodgepodge of loosely related strains of political thought. Uh, you know, as one book put it, free market defenders, southern agrarians, hardline anti-communists, old-fashioned isolationists and Burkean traditionalists. And the only thing these disparate groups had in common really was a distaste for liberalism. Mm -hmm. Buckley founded the National Review kind of to establish credibility for conservatism, his line of thought. And as you said, it marks really marks the birth of the conservative movement. He pulled together all these voices into a single weekly journal patterned after the liberal journals at the time, like The Nation and The New Republic. And you mentioned this in your intro that in his inaugural issue, he describes his position and motivation saying, it stands athwart history yelling stop at a time when no one is inclined to do so or to have much patience with those who so urge it. So on, on first glance, this also gives us a taste for Buckley and his, his alliteration, his flair, his deep 
unmatched vocabulary. So he's standing athwart history yelling stop when no one else wants to do it. He started the National Review at a time when when he was in a distinct minority of conservatives were viewed as the kooks and the extremes. It's very, very different than now. Right. Where you know, over over our lifetime conservatism has has been a a real alternative to liberalism. Where in his time you had well, he says, literate America has rejected conservatism in favor of radical social experimentation. We're talking about 20 years of democratic domination at the, the presidential level with FDR, with Truman, and then, of course, in the in the House, Democrats had, had dominated as well. So he also says, we begin publishing then with a considerable stock of experience with the irresponsible right and a despair of the intransigence of the liberals who run this country. So the liberals dominate the the levers of, of government in the country and the, have all of the intellectual high ground. And then he refers to the irresponsible right. I think he, I think he means a couple of things. Number one, throughout his career, he called for the he wanted to push out what he called the kooks in the in the party and that would be sort of the john birch society or the you know neo-nazi type but also irresponsible right he's referring to eisenhower and he has basically nothing nice to say about eisenhower as well we might get to in just a minute but he views you know eisenhower as just a a new deal light and someone who had more or less capitulated to and accepted all the the New Deal policies and was also weak on anti-communism and had more or less given up the fight for true conservatism. And they kind of see their objective at the National Review as to stand firm and push back and and give a true uh, conservative alternative. It reminded me a lot of this sort of origin story of Irving Kristol that we read last week, although they, they mm-hmm, definitely are yeah. different kinds of conservatives. They both, I think, were confronting this thing of, we don't like what's going on with FDR and Truman, but we, what do we have to oppose it with? Do we have, you know, it's not enough to just say, I'm against that. We need something that we can articulate, uh, something with a, an intellectual backbone. And, and both men are definitely intellectuals in every sense of the word. And I, I mean, I think Buckley is far more to the traditional side of things, but he, he certainly had his libertarian impulses, um, which we'll see in some of these writings. It's interesting how much he and Crystal, to some extent, really impacted the discussion today, because to talk about conservatism now without talking about Buckley and, and what National Review did, drawing together all of these different strands of opposition to the liberal establishment of the New Deal, it, you, you really can't talk about conservatism without that. And I mean, his contribution, as he said, in bringing everyone except for the really crazy types together was huge. I mean, in, in a way, it really impacted what the Republican Party would do far more than Eisenhower's politics did, which is pretty, pretty crazy considering he was a popular two-term president. But yeah, when we're talking about what is what is conservatism in Eisenhower's America, I think Buckley reflected it more and, and defined it more than anybody else. I think that's exactly right. In one of the essays that we read called The Conservative Alternative from 1959, this was pretty early on, and also as a sidebar, he was pretty young. So he was born in 1925. So in 1955, the National Review was established. He was only 29, 30 years old. And when he wrote God and Man at Yale, which put him on the map, he was only 26. Yeah. So 
he got started early. Very, very impressive. Very impressive, especially as we were just talking about. Most 26-year-olds just more or less fall in line with wherever their parents were. I don't know what his parents' politics were, but clearly, I mean, this guy was a trailblazer. So in the conservative alternative, he gives us what he views in 1959 as the conservative positions. And I think it's worth maybe <clears throat> chatting about each one of these. But mm-hmm. number one, I'll, I'll read through them and then let's talk a few if you don't mind. But determined resistance to the spread of world communism, a sympathetic understanding of the spiritual essence of human existence, patriotic concern for the nation and its culture, belief in decentralized political power, and respect for the wisdom of the free market. So his number one is determined resistance to the spread of world communism. And he stakes out that position because at the time, you know, you had, again, more than a generation of democratic control. Obviously, he was very critical of of the way that FDR and Truman prosecuted the Cold War. But then you have Dwight Eisenhower come in and his first order of business is find a way out of Korea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Buckley will will also strongly criticize Ike for doing not much to preserve Hungary from from the communists from the Soviet Union. Really didn't do much to to stop or to mitigate uh, the red China, the Maoist control in China. And later he was the one who invited Khrushchev to visit America. All of these are antithetical to you know what Buckley believes and and it's even possible that had Adlai Stevenson won in 1952 that you know Stevenson came from sort of the the Truman school you know he may have he may, he may have uh, extended the Korean War well Ike withdrew but he has strong Buckley has very strong feelings about communism and pushing back on it yeah and I, I think that when we look at those times too I mean you're you're like you say coming out of the Truman era where I mean, Truman was he was not soft on communism, but he also was coming out of an administration that was shot through with sympathizers or at least people who were happy to live in peace with the communists and let them have their spear mm-hmm. and us ours. And I mean, that's how you end up with things like the Alger Hiss trials that would come later in the fifties as Republicans did expose some of the, the communists within the administration. And I think Buckley draws a good line here between the John Birch society who thought everybody was a communist in in the Roosevelt administration, mm-hmm. Truman administration, Eisenhower himself, you know, they were all giving away the world to the communists. And he says, well, that, you know, kind of read those people out of the party in effect saying that's, you know, these are, these are patriotic American communists. Do. But he also thinks a lot of people are just too soft on it and just too willing to give in, too exhausted from the fight of World War II and, and later of Korea and just willing to kind of roll over. And that's, uh, that, that certainly becomes a defining feature of the Republicans and conservatives generally during the Cold War. And that that's that itself is an important shift when you consider that the Republicans were the isolationist party under mm-hmm. you know the, for the first half of the century, especially under Roosevelt, you know, who Roosevelt wanted to get us into World War II because he saw the, the fight against fascism as really a, a defining struggle of our times. And a lot of conservatives were happy to be behind, you know, the, the two oceans that protect us from Europe and its troubles and Asia and its troubles, and we're happy to just do our thing and let those people kill each other over there. So by by taking that internationalist stand, it, it, it fights for conservative ideals in that it is anti-communist, and that is 
I mean, their ideas are unconservative, but it also it also changes those ideas and really kind of taking up the mantle of internationalism. So that by the end of the Cold War, it was the Democrats who were more isolationist. So it's so fascinating. I mean, you have really have this convergence of both the neoconservatives, the Crystals, as well as Buckley and the, these move, new movement conservatives who were deeply concerned with with communism and pushing back. And as you as you mentioned, you know that that's coming on the heels of a Bob Taft, Senator Bob Taft party of isolationism and real reluctance to engage internationally, protectionism in trade. And to me, it really feels like. Is reading several of these essays that Buckley sees sees this contest between democracy and communism almost in spiritual terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's more than just the Soviets are our enemies, but also there's something much bigger at stake. And he be, I th- he feels like it feels to me that he kind of views it as a almost like a spiritual battle, pitting the religious and intellectual values of America, the West, against this global atheist collectivist leviathan offered by communism that's also trying to take over the world so not just not just competing teams but competing ideologies that matter and that will have resonance and and serious ramifications you know going forward for the for the history of humanity Mm -hmm. all right so a second thing he says as a conservative alternative a sympathetic understanding of the spiritual essence of human existence I think you and I have really discussed this in a couple of books with Weaver and also Nisbet, really pinpointing this. There's another aspect and element of human existence that matters. It's more than just the material need for a living wage, let's say, or to make more money than, than others and share the wealth, whatever. There's also this deep visceral need for meaning for human beings. And for Buckley, who is a very strong Catholic throughout his entire life. I think he he viewed one of the main core thrusts of conservatism is preserving that that spiritual side and giving credence to it and respecting it and making it a part of public life. Yeah, and I, th- I think we see that in uh, that that may be also one of the themes that runs throughout these books, especially the, among the 20th century thinkers. It was one of the things that Goldwater started out talking about in his book is that there are goals beyond material goals. There are ideals beyond what's in your pocket and what's in your wallet. That Yeah, that's sort of spiritual conservatism. It's harder to define than simply redistribution of wealth, taxation of high income. These are, these are math problems. The spiritual essence of human existence, that's, that's, the, that's the, the struggle, theological and philosophical struggle of mankind's entire literate history is... What is that? What is the spiritual essence of human existence? But yeah, for, I think it's it's important that, I mean, it's it seems throughout the readings that Buckley's Catholicism informs him, informs his views, even when he doesn't explicitly mention it. It's definitely a part of who he was. That also could could be a reason why anti-communism, because that mm-hmm. because they, they deny that spiritual essence. There, there is none. You know, they, they're an atheist uh, ideology that is it, not, not just indifferent to religion like you might see even among some american conservatives but you won't but the communists actually being hostile to religion and fascism was in its way too in in some forms so that that spiritual essence thing is uh again it's a theme that comes up in all of these works and it's sort of the, the ideals beyond the immediate the ideas beyond ideals beyond the the financial the uh the temporal in a way and that's that's still a part of conservatism today and even as it a diminishing part of 
ideology on the left. A next conservative position that he that he talks about is patriotic concern for the nation and its culture. I'm glad he mentioned this because I I believe that we'll get to this these these particular values elements of conservatism in future books, including starting with next week probably. But patriotism he viewed as as a core conservative theme and concern for the nation itself and for culture. And again, culture is something that we've talked about in Bork's book mm-hmm. and Nisbet's book, preserving what's good about the culture. Well, and of course, Burke too. Edmund Burke is about tradition and culture and preserving what's good from the past and what has allowed us to, to establish society and to live together. And I think, I think Buckley sees, and we'll probably, probably read this in future books. I, I hope we do, but he sees that American culture is unique. There is something special about America. It's not just, you know, a situation where the only difference between, between America and say the Soviet union is just historical differences but we're exactly we're exactly the same. But I think he would argue, and he, he does in in other essays that th- there is something special about America. In in one point, he says the difference between us—that's the difference between the United States and the Soviet Union—isn't that we are saint we are saints and they are sinners. It is that we seek to be saints and they seek to be sinners. <laughs> I, I had I had that I had that one highlighted too. That's that's a great passage. To me, I think what he's getting at, I take his point to be that. America seeks to help establish peace and freedom, and of course it makes mistakes, but it's out there trying to do good and has good at heart, where the Soviet Union, on the other hand, was seeking to conquer and to occupy, mm. and there is a moral difference there. The, the communist ideology, it doesn't, it doesn't point to higher things, really, it just points to a different sort of man, and I, I think it's sort of... I would call it a fallen ideology, I don't, I don't know, but it's, it's not one that really lifts its eyes above the mud. You know, it, it, it wants to force men to behave in a way that it thinks would benefit us all, but it doesn't really have any principle higher than that that utilitarian mutual benefit, which even that doesn't work. But it, that combined with, I, I mean, the, the patriotic nationalism here is definitely more of the Burkean traditionalist conservatism, but you can see how it meshes with the anti-communism also, because they had that ideology of all men are the same, mm-hmm. you know, where we're going to put this system in place in every one of these different countries that we conquer and it's going to be great. And even if it isn't, we're still going to do it and it's going to work for everyone because we're all just you know, hairless apes who have a couple of thoughts in our heads and we can be made to conform to this universal system. That That's something that even a lot of people on the left would object to today, but on the right, it's always been a, a source of, it, it's a problem is to say this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just looking at that, the idea that different cultures have different, things about them and that people like it that way. It's not, it's not wrong that there be a different culture in America than there is in France or Italy or Russia or Saudi Arabia. And that's, that's okay. And that, that kind of comes back to our, our crystal discussion about Neo Wilsonian universal values, you know, the sort mm-hmm. of rhetoric that uh, led to the Iraq war. I don't remember Buckley's view on those on the, on the Iraq war, but uh, I can imagine that, you wouldn't think the idea that every culture wants American style liberty and democracy. I don't, I don't think mm-hmm. he'd be on board with that. It goes without saying too, that if this were a leftist minds podcast, <laughs> we would not be reading about the centrality of patriotism because on the left patriotism is almost scandalous. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, 
it's it's naive and it's the sort of thing you, you they say it with a sneer like it's like yeah, right. virtue or righteousness well no one could really believe yeah. in these values they're always just a, a front for something evil exactly it's either a front for for uh, racism and you know white nationalism or it's just a, a an adolescent naivete but we're seeing now really the reemergence of patriotism as a serious factor around the world not just in america yeah. but with uh, with tr- with trump and where he you know wants the country to go and with brexit and you know we have more populist right victors really throughout Europe. And I think this is something that this is, well, patriotism for Buckley is also, you know, a way to bring in those isolationists who've, who have always been about, you know, let's focus on America. We don't need to worry about what's going on in Europe. Let them fight their own battles. Let them worry about their own concerns. And let's take care of ourselves here at home and kind of bunker down. And that's a good fit for that. But then patriotism also is kind of, a, to me, I think of really important factor for a country, although it can get out of hand, but it's, it's very important to sort of feel that unity and have that sense of purpose. You know, as a kid, when, you know, the Soviet Union was still strong until it fell, you, I got the strong sense that, you know, there was a, a team us versus them mentality, but in a positive way, because it, you know, it engenders patriotism and unity in a country because we have a common cause where, at this point, there, obviously the Cold War is over. We don't have, we almost don't have a unifying, you know, target that brings us together and allows us to work together. Instead, you know, now we're going each going in a million different directions about, you know, according to wh- what America should be in, you know, in the abstract. Or we need to go back to the way th- things used to be. You know, make America great again. Or you know, we need to move well beyond that. And as you and I have discussed in other podcasts, you know. Let's let's erase the chalkboard, forget the past, leave it in the past, and you know move to this bold new future or whatever. I think maybe the, in, in the Cold War there was less opportunity for mischief in the cause of nationalism because it did have that focus. As we we knew what we were using our nationalist impulses to oppose Soviet Soviet domination mm-hmm. of the world. I think nationalism can be a force for good, but it, it's also easy for unscrupulous leaders to use it in a way that. Our nation's great, so we've got to conquer that nation next to us because they're terrible, and you know, or we can't accept any ideas from outside because they're not American, you know, or not British, or not whatever your nationality is, you know. So, but I, I think that's part of what what Buckley was bringing together in the his sort of synthesis of conservatism was that that positive nationalism that takes, you know, that, that accepts that America is a great place and that things that are unique to us are good and that we should be happy with them and we should be glad to spread our ideas uh, through you know culture not not so much through conquest yeah so another value of conservatism that he labels is a belief in decentralized political power and uh, we even read an essay from 1996 called big day for federalism yes where he talks about this very thing. He says, if Vermont wants very different social welfare programs from New Hampshire, what better means of observing their relative effects than to encourage experimentation? You know, this is the real idea of the uh, laboratories of democracy where each state sort of goes, tries different things and to, to find out what works rather than trying to centralize everything. You know, federalism is a big part of that. And I, I hope we read more about federalism in other 
our other texts in the future. Because to me, you know, federalism is a, is a core conservative belief that's at least important mm-hmm. to me. And he puts it this way, why should residents of Pennsylvania send payments to Washington for Washington to send back nearly equal payments? And I, I feel the same way about, for example, the gas tax and highway trust fund that states at the state level, the gas tax is collected and it's sent back to Washington, basically to be laundered and, mm-hmm. and, uh, sh- and shaved off the top. And then it's returned back to the states. Now, there is some reason for this because you have some states that maybe are not collecting quite enough, and so they could use a little bit of help. But really what we're talking about is let's take the money from Kansas and Utah and even California, and then let's launder it through D.C. and shave some some percentage off the top so that we can pay these bureaucrats, and then we'll send it back to the states basically with uh, strings attached and force them to put it to use only in these specific buckets. So you just you can't build what you want the highway you want to build. Instead you have to also spend a certain amount of money on bike trails and right. and on transit, even if your state doesn't really use transit. Yeah, so it's forth. it's the the rules that come back with it are always the the catch, you know. And states I think state politicians talk like, well, we're getting all this money from Washington. Like, but but it's your own money. And that you're being bribed yeah. with your own money. And now it comes back with like you get uh Conservatives have forever talked about the, abolishing the Department of Education, although when we win election, we never actually do it. But, you know, that, that's the sort of thing that maybe 10% of your school funding is coming from the feds, but they also give you 90% of your rules. So, yeah, which yeah, costs yeah, money yeah. to comply with. And then, so that mm-hmm. eats into anything you're getting from them. Plus, as, as you say, it's their own money. So if they just would abolish that percentage of the tax that feeds that, and that the states would raise up their taxes to take the place of it, the taxpayer is no worse off. And meanwhile, yeah. his local school district or, or county or, or state has control over something important to them. Like, there's no need of it to be federalized. I, I found the, um, the theme of laboratories of democracy really fascinating because you hear it all the time in, among conservatives. And it's something I love also. I mean, I'm sure I've had it in my writing a few times. But that was that was from Justice Louis Brandeis, uh, who was hmm. on the left of the court in his day and uh, was a progressive about 100 years ago when he was nominated by Woodrow Wilson. And it's, it's just fascinating how much that idea has been completely abandoned on the left and wholeheartedly adopted by the right. It's such a major shift. I attended... Uh, Federalist Society Lawyers Convention in Philadelphia last year, and the the only other than Justice Scalia, the the, the Supreme Court Justice mentioned approvingly the most times was Brandeis. It, wow, uh, it's yeah, it kind of blew me away. But that embr- the embrace of federalism and and local control has has come to really it, some in some ways it's conservatism's most important attribute in America, at least in, in certain fields of, of law and culture. And it's, it's just amazing what the shift has been. Yeah, and to piggyback on that, federalism is, is not just a method for conservatives to win. Yeah. I mean, let's take a look at uh, gay marriage. Obviously, that that's something that grew out of the states, you know, Hawaii, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. medical marijuana, and now recreational marijuana. It's, you know, I think that the idea of federalism has over the years become intertwined in some people's minds, certainly on the left, that, you know, that's just a, a cover, a pretext word. What you really mean is we need to go back to Jim Crow. Yeah. 
yeah, it, it, states yeah, rights. It gets and, tied up with civil war and yeah, Jim Crow and and, and certainly the the bad uses of local control. But I I mean I I really thought the, the past two years would see a lot more leftist federalism just because especially even before the midterms with Republicans controlling everything in Washington. You think, well, what better time to rediscover subsidiarity and local control? And, you know, if you, if you want national health care, you can, you can do it in California. You know, there's, there's no one, mm-hmm. well, there, there's probably some Medicaid rules that do stop you, but we could repeal those. That would be fine. You know, I, that's what they want to do and let it work out, you know, and, and yeah, the drug war, especially it seems, um, there was a uh, Gonzalez decision uh, 15 years ago at this point where you had a, a strange coalition on the court you know, for and against the idea that if somebody grows a plant in his own property, smokes it on his own land, like how is this a federal concern? How is this interstate commerce or whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. I think that was one of those where you know, Justice Scalia on one side and Thomas on the other and you know, some of the liberals went one way and some of the liberals went the other. And that's something I thought you'd see more of, especially with, the, as you said, the rise of uh, marijuana as a political issue. But you haven't that mm-hmm. much. And that's maybe it's just that, like you said, that that sort of cultural association of federalism with the right is so strong in the minds of the left that they think we, they can't get on board with it. Or maybe they just think that, that, that Trump and the Republican Congress is an aberration and well, once we're in control, then we'll never leave again. But that's that's kind of crazy thing for any party to think. Again, I mean, I, I, I strongly believe that federalism is not just a, a path for conservatives to win. I mean, you got California privacy law, you have marijuana, medical marijuana, you have you know gay marriage. These are all prominent examples. But that said, I mean, even even Republicans at at times will oppose federalism because it. You know, it's either party is going to view it sort of through the lens of, is it easier to win at the state level or at mm-hmm. the federal level? And more often than not, it's easier to win at the federal level. And then, then you can just drop this blanket centralized control. Yeah. It's disappointing how many just see it as a tool rather than, I mean, as discover when we read the federalist papers, I think they presented it as sort of a, another way of dividing power. Another, mm-hmm. it's, it's a good end in itself to separate power among different levels of government because it keeps anyone from becoming too powerful. And I think that, yeah, a lot of our politicians just view it as, like you said, where can I win here or there? If, it, mm-hmm. if it's there, well, then I'm federalist. If it's there, oh no, I'm centralizing now. Yeah. It's disappointing to see our side do it. So he says, conservatives do not deny problems in society. They insist only that the answers of liberalism create worse problems than those that they set out to solve. That's, obviously an echo of, of Goldwater. It's not that conservatives don't see that there are problems that need, need to be addressed, but Buckley says local control at the lowest political union. That's, you know, federalism again. That's how these, these problems should be addressed. And big liberal solutions, more off, much more often than not, they don't work. And it's just kind of wasteful spending. And if anything, really what we're accomplishing is trying to make ourselves feel better by throwing some money at it saying, you know, if we throw money at it, then at least we're doing something, even if it's something that's inefficient or completely ineffective. And there's any number of federal programs that, you know, fall into this bucket. Now, again, there are certainly federal programs that more or less do what they're supposed to do. You know, Social Security does help Mm -hmm. retirees to sort of have a 
a subsistence level, you know, of existence, but any number of jobs programs in the same program, more or less 15 times over just in different agencies and none of it's effective. And we never step back and analyze these programs to see if they work. You know, part of the reason why is, you know, people on the left, they don't, they don't want to analyze and see if it works because that's less important almost than are we doing something about it? Are we throwing money at it? And rather than worrying about whether it works, let's just throw more money in a different, uh, in a different jobs program. Or mm-hmm. yeah, for the politician, it sounds good to say you're spending the money. Oh, we're doing something. You know? And then for the, for the bureaucracy that gets created, well, they're certainly not going to say it doesn't work because then they'd be out of a job. So right. it, yeah, it feeds right. on itself, just gets bigger, hire more people, give out more money. Does it do anything? I mean, when we looked at, um, during the last recession, they had the big stimulus bill. And I just remember looking at that and comparing it to New Deal programs, which it, a lot of the, the stimulus was mostly just giving out more money to people. And then when that was gone, there's nothing left. You know, I mean, it's mm-hmm. increased social welfare payments. Whereas, you know, the, the New Deal programs, a lot of them were terribly and wasted a ton of money too. But at least when they were over, you know, like a school left over that got built. And that, that would still be used. You know, like the schools I went to were both WPA built. Hmm, yeah. And it's, it, you know, and was that inefficient? Oh, definitely. You know, I mean, there was a lot of waste in all those programs, but they were focused on hiring and employing people rather than just subsidizing uh, unemployment. And then two, the th- building something, you know, creating something that would last so that even if it costs way too much, and even if maybe the Fed shouldn't be the one building it, at least you get something at the end. But the, the stimulus didn't really build anything. I mean, they 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 funded a, some road projects that wouldn't maybe have gotten funded for a couple of years. But these were all things the government was already doing. We talk about a conservative solution. Yeah, a lot of the, the solutions coming out of the left are just. It's like that. Uh, I think it was Ben Bernanke talking about dropping money from helicopters. That, that's a lot of what that was the Obama stimulus. They're just pouring yeah. out a big sack of money and, uh, and where'd it go? Well, I don't know. It's gone now. Well, shovel ready projects. But what we discovered is projects are not really shovel ready because, you know, you decide to do a project, then you have about eight to 10 years of, yeah. of red tape and federal regulations that you have to navigate. And that could have been something that they did. You know, they could have, you want to get stuff going in America, re- exempt all these programs from, you know, half the reviews and regulations, and maybe you can get people back to work on them. But mm-hmm. that also upsets a certain constituency and a certain bureaucracy that is very happy to slow down every road and rail project with endless consultations mm-hmm. and environmental impact statements. And yeah, it's 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 sort of become an ideology on the left that doesn't really want to do anything. They just want to maintain this massive structure and dump more money into it. Like Irving Crystal and and like uh, Bork, Buckley sees his position as conservatives as in in opposition to the liberal posture, which you know he'll he believes that liberals are ashamed of America, and he'll say in in the liberal mind, America is a country committed to racism, dominated by the military industrial complex. It's an agent of violence and savagery around the world. Of course, he wrote this in 1969, the height of the Vietnam War, agent of violence and savagery, and what he says, the apogee of materialism and hypocrisy to Buckley. I think that's just appalling that 
you know, comparing that, compare that to the patriotism conversation mm-hmm. we just had. Obviously, this is as much an issue today as it was then, and that's why Bork is writing about it. But even today, I was listening to another podcast of a couple guys that I think are really interesting, but definitely on the left, and uh, they asked themselves the question of, on balance, am I more proud or more ashamed of American history? And they both decided that they were more ashamed. And I almost crashed my car listening to that. <laughs> it's it's like compared compared to what you know. I mean, I guess compared to the ideals, you know, to compared to a society made of all perfect saints, sure. But compared to the real world, compared to how nations have behaved today and have always behaved, there's so much idealism in the American presence in the world. There's so much wanting to do the right thing and obviously like like buckley said earlier it's not that we're all saints there are plenty of sinners among us and plenty of mistakes made plenty of bad policies but it's a country that's animated by principles and those principles are good Mm -hmm. and that's that's more than you can say for 90 percent of the nations that exist now or have ever existed I mean, hey, this this is a country where racism still exists. There's no question about that. But I'd like to see another country. I'd like to see one of these leftist countries to vote in a member of the minority group as mm. a president or whatever prime minister of their country, as we did with you know Obama. I just think it's it's just laughable to think otherwise. And you know, agent of violence and savagery. I mean, that, I guess that's one interpretation of Iraq and Afghanistan, but. It's also the case we spent two trillion dollars trying to bring democracy to Iraq. Now, whether that was that was uh, wise or foolhardy is a different question. But we didn't go there to try to for imperialist motives mm. to colonize the country. In fact, most Americans are like, we need to get the hell out as soon yeah, as we I mean, can. There are our involvement in Afghanistan with the Soviets' involvement in, Af- in Afghanistan a few decades earlier. They were just about conquest and about advancing the perimeter of world socialism. I don't think they particularly cared what the various peoples and tribes wanted. Uh, we made the big show of work and to convene this, uh, what was it? The Loya Jerga, the national convention where they had all the different tribes in Afghanistan, many of whom hate each other and have been feuding for years. We tried to get them together and oh, how do you guys want to govern yourselves? Mm-hmm. You know, but why don't you elect somebody? Let's set up a system. I mean, that, yeah, that's that's not the act of a conqueror. I mean, it's an act of a disruptor. Because, I mean, we disrupted the Taliban, and that's, I'm not, I don't have a problem with that. Yeah, it's, it's, hardly, it's hardly violence and savagery. And I, I kind of, if, if you wanted to talk about Buckley's views on pacifism, I thought this was one of the great essays we read. Yeah, let's do it. Where he said, all civilized men want peace, and all truly civilized men must despise pacifism. That was a mm-hmm. great, yeah, it's a great one. It grows out of his, uh, he talks about uh, giving speeches on college campuses where so many of the younger folks are, this is from 1959. So this is people who are probably in contemplation of nuclear war as, as we are, we and the Soviets are building up our massive arsenals. It's just when he's confronted by pacifists, it's sort of, well, peace is, peace is something we all want, but at what cost? Um, he called pacifism mm-hmm. a Christian heresy, which is a great way of putting it. Um, where is it? Peace is, 
unthinkable in a community in which plunderers have hold of a city at night, and the prayer for peace is not a prayer that the elders of the community maintain the peace by yielding every night to plunderers. Rather, it's a prayer that men be helped in finding the strength to suppress their acquisitive and aggressive instincts sufficiently to make unnecessary armed resistance to man by man. I think yeah, that's sort of, we could have peace on earth if we just yielded to the most powerful, aggressive power and it became willing servants of them. You know, that's peace. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's, there's peace right. in China right now, and it's because they've got a government that's suppressing dissent, you know, and maybe that's coming, you know, maybe the communists coming out of decades of civil war in China for a couple of years, people might've thought, well, at least, at least it's peace. But then it, uh, as the longer it goes on and the more oppressive it is, you have to say peace, but at what, you know, sometimes peace mm -hmm. isn't worth it. If the, if, if the result is that. And he's deeply suspicious of these student pacifists anyway, because he says they're not motivated by the horrors of war, but as he says, by a diluted loyalty to the West, <laughs> It's engendered by modern liberalism, basically a pretext. It's not so much war as is, and going back to this same subject, as they see a moral equivalence between between America and, and the Soviet Union or, or the North Vietnamese. Yeah, that's kind of the same problem I think he has with Eisenhower and the idea of detente with the Soviets. It's, you know, it's saying, well, look, you do your thing, we do our thing, let's call it even... Let's not really struggle against each other. You could say, well, if, you know, if the if the struggle wasn't against a, an evil empire, that would be okay. But maybe let's look at what we have, and let's look at what they do, and look at look at our ideals, and look at their theories. Is is peace worth it? Is peace worth enslaving half the world to to socialism? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a tough one. I, 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 I mean, I think he's right, of course, but the difference between peace and pacifism is a, is a good distinction. And like you said, he's just a, a brilliant writer mm -hmm. and he really can boil it down in a way that you know, these essays are pretty short, but he says in just a few words, a whole, a whole lot of ideas. Yeah, he really does. Almost like poetry. But one more subject that I wanted to hit before, before we end and, our time, I think, is pretty short now, but in one essay that we read called National Review in the 1960 Election, obviously written in 1960, he, he kind of lays forth the movement, movement conservative ethos. He says, the argument that one must vote for the lesser of two evils is very persuasive. The problem is that before we know it, the lesser of two evils becomes the new good. And from that moment, we become morally adrift. He's talking in reference to Nixon. Because the National Review opposed Nixon, really was looking for a third party. That was basically a heresy because he's essentially encouraging conservatives, you know, don't vote for Nixon or don't campaign for him. Because he says, there's no prospect of liberating the Republican Party from the faction that now controls it, which is those Eastern liberal Republicans, the Rockefellers, the Nixons. So there's no prospect of libera liberating so long as the party enjoys executive power. Mm -hmm. Consequently, we must break the old rules, defeat Nixon, and hope that we may succeed during the next four years in developing a true and effective opposition to the left Democratic president. Now, to me, this just jumped out because <laughs> yes. this is the MO of the Tea Party, right? I mean, he had several, you know, Senator DeMint saying, I'd rather have 25 true conservatives than 
than 51 squishy Republicans. In other words, I'd, I'd rather have a, a solid, purified opposition party than to actually have control over the lever, levels of levers of government. But here is kind of, again, Buckley is a movement conservative, so he is kind of a forerunner of the Tea Party. He's not necessarily a forerunner of, you know, the Mitt Romneys of the world, more of closer to the Dements or, or Ted Cruz's. Like, mm. let's be, let's be intellectually honest and more pure, and let's let's find a way to not just win for the sake of winning, but we want to win to change the balance of power and the dynamic in America and the policy conversation. And, uh, and they got that, they got their candidate in Barry Goldwater, who obviously we've, we've spoken about and, and admire, but he got destroyed in 1964. And so really their moment didn't come until Reagan. And I looked this up and the fact is Reagan was really the first Republican that they were after Goldwater, that they were fully behind and they were, they were happy to see win the first president in since the beginning of you know, the National Review founding in 1955, it took until 1980 yeah. for them to get their president. Yeah. But I, I wonder what you th- think about that. Sorry to cut you off, but I, I wonder what you think about this idea of purity versus winning. You know, is there a balance there or is it more important to be pure and hold firm to your principles? Or, I mean, that's where we are today. We have two sides that, that are, you know, very much dug in and, and not interested in compromising at all partially because they fear losing a primary and putting them in a posi- position where their their re-election is at risk it's a that's a tough choice because I, I think if you're if you're an ideological conservative or an ideological progressive you're never going to be completely satisfied with the politicians at the top of your ticket because getting none of these parties has one faction that represents half of america so they're always compromises there's always, you know, half measures and fudges and in-betweens. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's easier to, I'm not even sure it's easy to say that you'd rather, it's like the quote attributed to Henry Clay that I'd rather be right than be president. Mm -hmm. I don't think Henry Clay really said that. And I think he would have rather been president, but it's good. It, it's good to have a candidate who actually embodies your views. But if the cost of that is electing someone who opposes your views in every way, I mean, that's, I mean, this is what conservatives dealt with in 2016 with the nomination of Donald Trump and what we're going to deal with in 2020. Will he have a primary challenger? Will he not? I mean, I I can't imagine Mm -hmm. a primary challenger would get very far against an incumbent. Well, the national review finds itself in that exact same position again. Yeah. Right. And that's worth mentioning is, they don't support Trump. Now they're not as they're they're not as uh, animated and loud and public about it as say the Weekly Standard had been. I mean, it's the writers at National Review are not in favor of Trump, so they s- sort of sit this out, don't support him, and you know hope hope for a primary challenger or maybe even support a primary challenger. I mean, this is this has come full circle. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's interesting in that way, and it's kind of for the same reason they didn't support Rockefeller Nixon types is I, I think a lot of conservatives in 2016 thought Trump was insufficiently conservative and that he, you know, I know my thought was that if he was elected, he would uh, end up being the moderate Democrat that he used to be, um, mm-hmm. you know, maybe conservative on a few issues. He's always been conservative about <clears throat> things like illegal immigration, but he's also he's got views on trade that are at odds with both parties in some ways. And he's got 
a lot of, I mean, when he was mostly concerned with being a businessman in New York, he was, you know, all on board with all sorts of Democrats because the way he tells it, that's the cost of doing business in a big city. And, that, and that's true. But, you know, I, I remember wondering if this guy ends up with a Democrat Congress, isn't, is he going to just say, well, all right, let's see what we can do. Forget, mm-hmm. forget about those who elected me. <laughs> I think that's been less true than I, than I expected. Maybe just, maybe just because of his stubbornness more so than any particular principles. But it, it, Well, that opportunity is still presenting itself right now. Right. It's just a matter of, you know, how, how far the, down the road do House Democrats get relative to uh, investigations and, you know, yes. the Russia probe and so forth. And, you know, short of that, I, I mean, I, I pretty much guarantee he'd be on board with a trillion dollar infrastructure bill that it's not paid for and it's basically oh, yeah. stimulus spending. Yeah. The guy has no problem with that. I mean, you know, this is, this is the downside of somebody who wants to run the government like a business. All our businesses are highly leveraged <laughs> and yeah, <laughs> you know, some of those things don't carry over. You can't, uh, can't declare bankruptcy and, and start over with the government or, I mean, you can, but it, then it's, it's not America, it's Greece. Uh, all right so we're pretty well over time okay we have a, a two second final thought oh uh, well not much more than what i've already said i think is that between the last two weeks readings we, we looked at two men who brought conservatism into clarity and into intellectual clarity and, and moral clarity and gathered disparate elements of what was basically just an opposition party and made them into a, a party of ideas. Mm-hmm. And I think that in reading Buckley, I mean, Buckley's good to read just like crystal is because they're both just great writers. And if you, if you enjoy politics or political ideas, you know, these essays are they're, they're just good to read. It's, it's good ideas put well by a, a master craftsman of the language, but uh, their larger impact and his larger impact with national review firing line and all the all that he did to center conservatism among an, uh, uh, around an idea shows us why, why Buckley is essential to understanding what it means to be a conservative in America today. I'll second all that and it really makes me wonder in the absence of a, of a William F. Buckley and National Review, do we really have movement conservatism today? I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, because he came at a time and for probably 30 years he was he was that intellectual heft along with the Irving Crystals but but in terms of movement conservatism and bringing all these elements these scattered lines together he did it a, f- a friend of mine wrote a biography of of Buckley and he, he always talks about that you know basically like he was kind of the that brilliant voice in the wilderness makes me wonder can, can we get another one of those today anyway so that's it for for Buckley next week we're going to read Pat Buchanan, The Great Betrayal, a book he read in 1998. It's going to be a very different flavor, I think, than the other books that we've read. So hopefully you'll join us then. Thanks.